Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. We'll go ahead and get started. We are into the 12th chapter. It'll be uh, adoption, and we also have on the slate. Um, Saving faith. What's what's the what's the next one? What is it on your outline there? Sanctification. Sanctification. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We were going to do adoption last week. We didn't have enough time, so we'll just run into that. All of these are just so related um, to uh, the previous ones that have. It goes from one to the next one. This chapter twelve actually is the shortest chapter in in Westminster Confession. You can see that uh, one paragraph. A um, couple sentences or so, and that's it. That's that's the chapter of adoption. What's that now? So we finished four, five, and six on the previous chapter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're oh, we're just blazing through. Hey guys, how we doing? And I think we have this rolling, so it should be going. Yeah. Nandor got it going there. And so anyway, uh, if when we're dealing with adoption, you can say, well, why is there such a short chapter there? I mean, that's it. And, you know, it's probably one of the grandest doctrines of, of Scripture. And one reason would be, uh, as I understand from some people, they'll say, is because really there's not any false views here that they're having to deal with. A lot of times you'll see where it's coming from the Catholic angle and they'll come back and argue uh, on that end. And it's connected with so many of these other ones that we've been at. You'll notice a lot of repetitions sometimes at where we have been or where we'll be going. It's saying basically the same thing. But uh, adoption is uh, is a key doctrine. It's very important to us. Uh, And a lot of this is just a different way and a different view and different angle of seeing what justification is which, you know, we've looked at and um, discussed and thought about for years anyway. Um, when you get to assurance, that chapter, or uh, perseverance, that'll deal with this too, adoption. So, reasons why. Uh, and at that time, it didn't seem to be uh, so much of a need to be stressed. And you can see a lot of times why some are a little bit longer, because they're addressing uh, the false kind of teachings that they were taking on at that time and of course we would today in a lot of areas too Um, Southern Presbyterians uh, definitely like to stress adoption Uh, John Murray stressed it and wrote a book on it and uh, Robert Peterson Robert Webb and some other ones uh, they take um, I think uh, a great study on, on adoption itself let's just take a few verses and look at uh, the scriptural definition of adoption. Uh, in Ephesians 1.5, you can't help but think of that one. He predestined us to adoption. He predestined us to adoption. He predetermined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his free will. Of his will. <laughs> I had to put that there. Adoption as sons, and that's what his whole plan is. Um, Go to Galatians, just a book back, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, something very familiar to us. 
so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons because you are sons God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying Abba Father therefore you're no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through God amazing isn't it amazing thought heirs of Christ um, we are no longer slaves what a vast difference slaves to being sons of God and uh, heirs with Christ that's just amazing I mean this is like the top of the line this is like the apex of uh, redemptive grace and John Murray put it that way he also said it is, is the crown and glory of redemptive um, process the crown and glory of the redemptive process well, I mean, how good does it get? You know, it's one thing to be justified. That's fantastic, you know. He, but you know, and to bring forth His righteousness on us and and call us forgiven, and then He says we are children, uh, sons of God in that sense. Uh, let's go to Romans eight. We can't help but think of that one. And Romans eight is an apex in the book of Romans. Of all places, it's uh, definitely shining in. Romans 8, verse uh, 15. Um, matter of fact, 14 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery lead, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, as it was in Galatians, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, and indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Um, quite remarkable. Again, sons of God, heirs, uh, Abba, Father. Sounds like Galatians there. Uh, this is um, expanded a little bit more. Uh, this is... Um, a diamond, uh, right in chapter 8 here, the diamond of diamonds. And so, um, let's go to 2 Corinthians. On Sundays we've been doing 2 Corinthians. Well, uh, we'll be starting chapter 6 next time. And in verse 18, he says, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What a relationship. We we are that related to him. Especially when you think about how simple we are and how glorious our God is. Uh, it, to me, it just boggles my mind. To, to think of, of this. It's a mind-boggler. It's and like certainly in Psalm 8, what is man that he even thinks of us? You know? yeah. <laughs> it just, it's overwhelming. It sure is. Like it was... Um, I was saying the other day, uh, Paul Washer said it. You know, it would be an overwhelming, amazing kind of grace if if God just sent us to hell just for a little while, where we wouldn't be there for eternity because it's what we deserve. Or it would be astonishing in, in His grace that if He just put us in a neutral place, but to bring us into His family and get the full rights. Uh, of a child of the king and, and uh, adoption in the Roman world 
that's the way that it was thought of when you were uh, adopted into that family and they uh, you would be treated as anybody else in that family as any other children and uh, so that's what he's done is he's put us into that um, of course justification when we think of that it's it's forensic you know, it's uh, it restores the sinner. Righteousness is, is concerned there, and, and it really um, brings us into citizenship. That's one thing, to be citizens of the kingdom. It, that could have been enough right there. But yet adoption takes it one step further, and it restores the sinner to his uh, to sonship, in, in a sense that uh, it's, this is personal. Uh, this is family. So, you know, there's different views here as you look at justification. Uh, it's all a part of that. Yeah. Can you, can you maybe explain the difference, uh, if there is any, between adoption as, I guess, pre-Adam and our position with God now? Because I'm thinking uh, Matthew that says, Adam, son of God. But maybe just because he was created. Yeah, I I would tend to think um, most theologians would probably say yes, Adam would be considered that. Of course, he had a great relationship with God, and uh, we know that there he had a communication going on before they uh, there was sin, uh, an incredible position that that he was, and, and yet because of what Christ did. Uh, of course, this was all the plan of God anyway of what he was going to do with Adam, but uh, Adam was still not in a glorified position. Of course, we're not either, but we're considered to be children of God even right now, but that too will grow and will be considered in, in, in a glorified state in the, the most ultimate way. But uh, So there is that sense that Adam definitely was um, you know, the son of God in that he was had a relationship with him. But because of what Christ has done, he's elevated us to the highest position that we could possibly be. And uh, so there's a difference, but yet, uh, how, how far was God going to take Adam? Let's say if he would never have sinned. Well, we, we don't know. <laughs> we know what God's plan was, but uh, he definitely put him in a great relationship. And, and in our sense, one of these days, we'll have even a better relationship than Adam had at that time in his innocent state. In our glorified state, we'll understand him even more as being the, those children. So there is a difference, but... Uh, well, even the angels and those, uh, what they call the death sons of God. Right. They're, they're called the sons of God, but they're not, they don't have a right to the Right, and, and of course, that's good. Yeah, and, and Job, uh, yeah. they're speaking of the sons of God there. It would be the angels. And so sometimes sons of God doesn't always necessarily mean, you know, human beings. It can be uh, created beings in the, the angelic realm. Yeah, Barb. You would have to think that these adoption verses and this adoption doctrine would have a profound impact on child who is adopted on yeah. you know on this earth because they know what it's like to not belong and then to belong absolutely Does that uh, make sense? oh yeah uh, i'm sure everyone here has probably known somebody that's been adopted 
talk yeah. with them. And what a great illustration this is, you know, that, and to see how that identification is. And they may not exactly be viewed as equal with maybe if, if, if uh, their mother and father had children of their own. Um, sometimes they're identified as the same, uh, sometimes somewhat behind them. Um, or sometimes they feel like they're left out because they don't have a, a real family, different situations and, and different ones. But I think this is encouraging. I, I would think that when they become a Christian, they can start identifying what that is like. Yeah. I'm pretty sure uh, David Platt has adopted children and uh, with his wife. And uh, there's a whole chapter devoted to it in his book, uh, Follow Me. And it's talking about discipleship. That book is about discipleship, but at the same time, uh, you have to realize who you are as a disciple. And so he goes over the sonship of a Christian, and, you know, to the father, and how that relates to him and his ad adopted children. Because he goes over adoption, and he says this is the ultimate. This is the end, like the ultimate end. God's purpose is to make you a son. And which makes, well, and then, yeah, exactly, Romans 8. Yeah, stories where there's, uh, I think there was some nosy kind of uh, lady that was asking him questions that were sort of uh, a little bit um, annoying because, because they were kind of undermining his relationship to his son. Now that he's adopted, he's his son. And she was saying things that almost made it seem like that wasn't so. Like, where's his parents? Where, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he's like, you don't need to know that. He's my son. That's <laughs> great. So, right. He was offended by it. It's like he's fully in yeah, our family exactly. here. Yeah. You don't. You don't get it here. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's a. It's a great picture. It's uh -huh. a great picture of much bigger. Yeah. But it's. It's a great picture of. Uh, the book they're Father. reading on Retinet right now, that adopted for life. Have you been listening to that? Bob? I've heard something about it, but I, I don't. I it's haven't heard the it. Christian audiobook series that they do on there, and they've been reading. I'm this is the second time since the fall that they've done it, but it really models, you know, the biblical adoption. It says, you know, when they come into your family. You're 100% my son or my daughter. You know, you are, you know, yes, you are of Chinese descent or Eastern European descent, but you're going to come here and, you know, you're going to learn the American way. And part of the discussion is changing the children's names. Do we keep their foreign names or give them American names? And they, it's talked about giving them the names of the culture they're going into so that they can identify with that culture. Just like we're given the name sons and daughters of God once once we're adopted in, you know. And it really that shows the biblical model of adoption that's set forth. That's great. And that's that's why we can uh, we can take great joy in in this particular doctrine. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we don't know what it's like to identify with American culture because <laughs> <laughs> we're named Hungarian. <laughs> <laughs> Weird names. <laughs> 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 well, Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And how many times have you been called Nicholas? Yep. Everybody. Yeah. 
Every time on the phone when I answer the phone, they go, oh, hi, hi Nicholas. <laughs> I said Nicholas. <laughs> let's, let's read this. Uh, I'm taking this from our, um, the one that uh, Zach Whitson put together, uh, Colonial Congregational Confession here. I see he's basically kept the same words there. You're going to see that, that third word, and you're, probably some of you are going to say, what? God has vouchsafed that in Christ, His only Son, and for His sake, all those who are justified shall be made partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number of the children of God and enjoy their liberties and privileges. They have His name put upon them and receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by Him as by a father. Yet they are never cast off, but are sealed to the day of redemption when they inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. You see a lot of verses in there. Yeah. You can't help but miss you know, to, to catch those. And, um, anyway, we read some of those. Uh, God is vouchsafed. You know, we don't really use that term today probably. Uh, at least I haven't used it on this particular day uh, outside of reading it. Um, it answers forth as uh, safe. Uh, today, really, in our meaning, it means God is guaranteed. God has promised. When God promises, when He guarantees, that's, that means it's going to come about. And then He says, you know, the justified are adopted. The ones who are justified. And we covered that. Safe. So, so Zach puts saved. He, 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 his purpose is trying to make it a little more readable in, in, in our language today without doing any kind of disservice to what what is being yeah, meant. That word voucher, uh, we still ah, use go. that at the theater. Bingo, very good. You, you actually use that. Yeah, it pays for, like, we gave those out for promotions when we sold gift cards, and now we're, people are using them, you know, because it's after Christmas, and they got their gift, and now they get to come in and use their voucher. So, so that's a that's a guarantee. Yeah. That's a promise. It's yeah. something that will work as money does. This is this is good, right? Yeah. Good. Hey, so it's still used. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, adoption it uh, brings us into the very rights, the the privileges, the liberties, and the privileges. I like that. Taken into the number of the children of God. That's the elect. Again, you know, it seems like on almost every one of these, you, you see something that deals with uh, God's children who are elect, the ones that He has appointed. So the justified or adopted. Like I say, that's a that's a quick, quick little chapter. But it, uh, it we could do a whole book on it. Matter of fact, there's a question after that. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. John 1.12 is to all those who received him, uh, the children of God. First uh, John 3.1 would be a good one. Uh, have that one. 
See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us <laughs> because it did not know Him. But, you know, that see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Uh, what I think one version might say, what manner of love is this? This is totally foreign. What, what, what is this? I, you know, a human can't understand it. And so that's the idea there. See it's how inter- great interesting that it puts in two of those three verses, after mentioning adoption, it goes on to uh, suffering. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mention it this time. <laughs> I know. Exactly, right there in the Romans 8, for instance. If indeed you suffer, if we do that, it'll show that it proves that we are Christians. And it, it, there's a great promise when, when we're suffering, we'll realize that we're children of God and look where it's really heading. So it helps us get through this world of suffering and anguish. Yeah, goes with it though, doesn't it? Beloved, now we are children of God. It's not yet appeared as what we'll be. <laughs> Takes it right on in the future. We know when He appears we'll be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. So in the meantime, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. And of course that gets into sanctification. As we look upon, as we're going to be able to see Him for who He is, and then realize that there's glorification for us, what do we do in the meantime? Well, we, uh, there's a purification that's happening or sanctification. And interesting that you'd say that because that leads us right in to the very next chapter. <laughs> we'll read this first one. Those who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having had a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are then further sanctified in a very real and personal way. Because of the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, and by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them, the dominion, it's a key word there, of the whole body of sin is destroyed. The different lust of the body of sin are increasingly weakened and mortified, and Christ's people are increasingly quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to practice all true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Again, you see a lot of scripture there. Justification is by faith alone, but it's faith that is not alone, right? Uh, We're far from the image of Christ Yet, even though we're being made in the image of Christ, uh, even though we're called and adopted, our image uh, ultimately is to be, we're made in the image of Christ, but at the same time, the image of man was effaced, but there is a work that is started now when one becomes a Christian. So this first one is really dealing with the dominion. The dominion of sin is broken here. Uh, notice that very first line, united to Christ, being in Christ, the effectually called, which we dealt with last week, the regenerated, 
I mean, if one was a brand new Christian, it would be great to take them through some of these things in a real short term. Uh, you can spend all the time you want on it, but there's so much in there. But they have a new heart, a new spirit uh, because of the death and resurrection. You get the gospel involved there. Uh, the Word and the Spirit dwelling in them. This is how we come to know these things. And then it says, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. That's a fascinating way to, to say that. Um, but that's really what it is, the dominion. The rule of sin is destroyed. The, the dominion. Uh, sin is still present, but yet the rule is there. Um, a, a guilt of sin the very guilt of sin is destroyed. We don't have that guilt hanging over us anymore as the sins are taken away. That's in justification. Uh, the power of sin is broken in sanctification. The power of sin has been broken. It no longer has the ultimate dominion there um, that it once had. It's broken. Um, sin reigns I mean, no. no. no we don't okay. All right. It no sin no longer reigns, right? Okay. It um, it actually is there. It's present, but it, again, it's it's been broken, uh, destroyed, be, or the power. Be like the transference of becoming a slave of sin to a slave. Right, and yet the the, the our old master is over there, it's like on the other side, calling, barking out orders to us, and we don't have to obey that anymore. Or flesh. Of course, the world, flesh and the devil. We doing a, oh, here, here's what I meant while I go. Sin remains, okay? But no longer reigns. Go to 1 Corinthians 6.11. tongue-tied. There he's talking about to the Corinthians and in their former life. And of course, if, if one kept up fornication and idolatry and adultery and being effeminate and homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, as he says, and so on and so forth. And in verse 11 he says, Such were some of you you were those things. You did those things. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of our God. There you have justified and sanctified in the, in the same sentence. Um, we're justified. Same time we're justified, we are sanctified. The thing is, with justified, it's a one-time happening. It's been done. Sanctification has been done and will continue to be. And it's a, this is called progressive sanctification. Sanctification leads to the practice, practice of holiness. Man, I'm having trouble getting it out of my tongue here today. There's a, there's a work that has begun in us. There's a work that continues in us. Sanctification. It needs to be set apart. Uh, it's the same word, hagios, uh, saint. Saint, set apart, holy, being sanctified. Um, that's First Corinthians six eleven. Wasn't it? Go to to Romans six fourteen, and th there's the idea of the uh, the dominion 
that it no longer has as far as sin is concerned. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. At one time before Christ, sin was master over us then. So if he's saying, it's not now, but it once was. It was the master. Uh, Philippians 3.10 Philippians 3.10 That I may know Him and the, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. And there is what our Christian life is. And as we, can, as we know Him, you know, that's all part of sanctification. Um, we know Him and power of his resurrection and the sufferings fellowshipping with him and that as we go through this life and he always kind of brings in the sufferings and you know the resurrection is a great glorious thing to be talking about but there again uh, there was the sufferings before that so as he goes as Christ went through those things so we too um, 2 Corinthians 7 1 there's a 2 Corinthians passage again Chapter 7. We did one out of 6 earlier. Here's one that follows right on the heels of chapter 6. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting... There we go, Mick. (laughs) Perfecting holiness. (laughs) In the fear of God. Uh, Since we have these promises, therefore, right... Because of this, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us keep on cleansing ourselves. It's a constant washing, a cleansing. He's washed us once, baptized us in the in the Spirit of God, but there's an ongoing cleansing, and that's the difference between justification and sanctification. Uh, all defilement, flesh and spirit. And so it's perfecting holiness. It's maturing more in the image of Christ, uh, and it's all in the fear of God. Realizing that, um, you know, this is what God desires us to do. We should uh, be hungry for that to happen. Um, and, of course, we're sanctified by what? Washing of the water of the Word. Sanctify them by thy Word. John seventeen seventeen. Jesus' prayer. Uh, night before... His crucifixion, His great prayer for the apostles, great prayer for the church, for us. Sanctify them by the truth. With Christ. So, anyway, that's um, that's the first part oh, no, no. in short. No, Uh-oh, okay. <laughs> We're moving last, on too quick. That last sentence, the different lusts of the body ah. of sin are increasingly weakened and mortified. Christ's people are increasingly quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to practice all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Well, that that sounds like wonderful, and it should be very true, but it sure doesn't seem like we're in that the lusts of the body of sin are increasingly weakened and mortified, and that we are increasingly quickened. Now, it may well be 
And I want to believe that, but boy, it just doesn't seem that way. So You know, you're right on. You're thinking exactly the way that these, these guys who wrote this, because when you get into point two and point three, it, it definitely goes into exactly what you're talking You're right. Okay. It doesn't seem like it. Sometimes it doesn't even seem like it at all. We can be so far from that. And by the way, the word for lust there, uh, that is talking about desires. It's not necessarily uh, sexual lust. It can definitely be. It can be, but it's talking about anything. It's dealing with sin, desires that we would have that wouldn't be godly. And this is where it gets into the battle. And that is the very next one. And then your third one. And you're right, Audrey, because this is getting to the reality. You can say, wait a minute. Because we could take and read that and almost get into like almost like a perfectionism that uh, Wesley uh, arrived at and others. Um, the thing is, when you get into point two, sin is not eradicated. And of course, we've already talked about that a little bit. Let's go ahead and read that. Um, what about the reality of this? All right? This sanctification extends throughout the whole person, yet it remains imperfect in this life. Some remnants of corruption live on in every part, and from this arises a continuous war between, between irreconcilable parties. The flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Now we're getting into what's really real, right? Um, one is real. It's This is what's really going on. Here's what God is doing. But in the meantime, we're saying, I'm not seeing it. I don't feel it. It doesn't seem like it at all, especially today. You don't, you don't believe, Dennis, what I thought today or what came against me, right? But, um, by the way, that very last line, where does that come out of? The flesh lusting against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. Where does that come from? Think of the... Well, actually, Romans 7 is going to be a key section we're going to be dealing with too. Um, and it is. That's what that is. But the fruit of the Spirit chapter? If, Galatians 5. Just before you get into the fruit of the Spirit talks about the battle. He says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire or lust of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. There's a Romans 7 right there. That sums up, in one verse, sums up what a big section of Romans 7 is dealing with. And Romans 7 gives, definitely gives, I think, an answer uh, to us for what is going on. Sin is not eradicated. We have the battle of our lives going on. A battle in the soul uh, between good and evil. Lord of the Rings, good and evil going on there, right? And I think of the picture and the types that are involved there in, in some senses. Uh, before, evil ruled in our lives. We really didn't have a battle. We could have felt guilty on some things, but it really wasn't a battle. We did what we could do or wanted to do. Uh, and and it, that was pervasive. And we had a master and we had uh, we had the emotions, the passions, and every aspect of life 
there in front of us, and we did what our will wanted, what we wanted to do. Our will did it. Um, but the thing is, is that when you become a Christian, there is an there's now a struggle with sin, and that is a good mark of a Christian when he recognizes he has a battle now, and uh, the the fight in in uh, Romans seven really is the basis for having the triumph in Romans 8, where he starts off with, now there's no uh, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and then that just keeps building up and getting better and better and better. But that very fight is the basis for that Romans 8. Fighting the remnants of sin. I, I noticed that was one phrase there. Some remnants of corruption live on in every part. Romans 7 talks about our our enemy and where that resides is in the body, in the flesh. We live here in the flesh. Uh, and I don't see two natures going against that at each other. I do see the the instrument that we're using, this body, still has the sin there and, and all the things that go with it. Yeah, Barb. Oh, I was just going to comment. Um, I think it was Spurgeon who commented, and I'm not going to say this exactly as he said it. In fact, I'll probably really mess it up. But he said the biggest or one of the biggest battles a Christian faces is not um, the battle between what's right and what's wrong, but what's right and what's almost right. That's Yeah, that makes it harder now, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, in our in our culture, we we can certainly see that, can't we? We battle that every day. Uh, I think the fact that a sinner, though, I mean, uh, one who has sinned, and maybe even in losing the battle, he still hates that sin. Oh, why did I do it again? I think it's a good proof of a Christian when he hates the sin. And Romans 7, I think, very clearly puts that forth. There, are, there isn't a different interpretation of Romans 7 where uh, they'll say that's before uh, Christ. And there's some good expositors that will take that view. But um, I think it explains the battle uh, better than any place that I see in, in, in all the Bible. Many verses deal with that, but I, I think it's, I've used it so many times. And I, a lot of us identify with that chapter so much. You know, I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I should be doing uh, constantly on. So I think it's a, a very good proof. We're, we're fighting uh, the remnants there of sin. Um, did somebody have a question? The, the third one um, sometimes kind of runs together with the second one, but I think it and some people say it's really probably not necessary. And John Murray really had some difficulty with some wording here on this third one. But I, I think we can understand it. Um, the third one says, In this war, although the remaining corruption for a time may greatly prevail... And here we go, Audrey. This is exactly what you're talking about. Everyone here knows exactly what you're talking about when you say that. Yet... Through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. And that's where Murray has some difficulty with because what well, we have a regenerate part and then we have an unregenerate part. And that, 
by that terminology he had difficulty. Not necessarily what the meaning may mean here, but the regenerate part overcomes. That's kind of difficult. It almost seems like there's two natures there, and we're not prescribing to two natures. We now are new creatures. We have a new nature, uh, but here it seems like there's a regenerate part and maybe an unregenerate part. I don't think they really meant that, but that language that we had used there and today could create a problem. I don't have too much of a problem with it because I think I know what it means. So the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life and evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word has prescribed to them. That's what he wants to do, the Christian does, to be strengthened. Um, does a Christian have a regenerate part? Well, he's, he's regenerated. I think he's wholly regenerated. We are new creatures. Uh, but a new nature does struggle with the imperfect desires. Um, but the idea in sanctification is direction. Having the right direction. Uh, moving more and more to heaven. One can be a Christian and of course we know we sin. And the thing is, is that you can say, well, now we're going the wrong direction. Yeah, that's true. And that's where repentance comes in and confession. And you know, there's a turnaround on that. But yet at the same time, God is still moving in us. And He can even still use the worst of things, Romans 8.28, to make it work for good. Second uh, Peter 3.18 says we are to grow in grace. Uh, that's progressive sanctification. There are people who teach against progressive sanctification. This is, you know, this is good as it gets. This is, this is it. We've already been sanctified, and uh, and then others go to an extreme of getting perfection, and to perfect, we can get to a point where we don't sin anymore. And uh, I don't see that in Scripture whatsoever. Um, Calvin said, "This is progressive. The progress is slow." That is so simple, but I think uh, I have to agree. It is very slow. It seems like sometimes it's not even moving at all. Um, well, we want a quick fix. God's like, no, you got to live your whole life in service to me while you're there. And then, you know, then you'll give your glorified body. <laughs> takes time, doesn't it? Yeah, he's teaching us, and that's how we grow. That's right. Growing in grace. If you substitute the word heart, substitute abilities, that's the archaic definition of heart. Does that make more sense? Ability. The regenerate. Ability overcomes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. But it could be. Given the archaic I like that better. As abilities. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that... That in itself could be. I, I think a lot of times, of course, the English language has changed so much right. in and those and hundreds Westminster of years. Uses part also. Yeah. Which, you know, so it, it, that might be what they mean. Sometimes it can seem like sin is winning, but real progress happens even though it doesn't look like it. And this is what we're talking about here. You can say, how can that be? Well, you remember Peter. Well, we'll turn there. 
in Luke 22. Peter denies the Lord, right? We know the story. But we'll read that. Luke 22, verse uh, 31. Simon, Simon. You notice Jesus doesn't call him Rock, Rock there. Calls him by his name that uh, first knew him by. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But look at this. But I have prayed for you. Here's the intercessor. Here's the mediator, right? That your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. You know, he, he really means to do well. And he said, I say to you, Peter. He calls him Peter there. The rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Amazing. We know, we know the rest of the story, what happened with Peter. And he, do you think that he was sifted like wheat? Definitely was. Now, God could have kept that from happening, but he didn't. He did not tempt Peter. Peter did it on his own. But yet, when it's all said and done, especially when you go into Acts chapter 2 and you see Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit, full of the Spirit, preaching that great sermon, giving the gospel uh, on that first day when the Holy Spirit has filled everybody. And so, um, thousands are saved. Uh, and so, you know, it's amazing what a difference had, had been made. And we know in at the end of John, we see Peter with Jesus and the Peter, do you love me and such, and uh, how he's restored uh, to really in, in his ministry and in every aspect. Uh, I think that really helped uh, Peter helped him right there. But later on, he's fully filled with, with God's Spirit. So, you know, it sure seemed like sin was winning there, didn't it? I mean, to do what he did and to see what happened, and, and yet you look at the, the end run of it and see what Peter uh, was in his apostleship uh, to the church. So the overall course of the Christian life and the direction is where it's at. I remember um, uh, Gerstner was saying, I think he was uh, on this Route 6, Highway 6. Uh, I guess he was, uh, he was heading east. but it ha And this might have happened to you before sometimes in your travels. All of a sudden, you, you have, the road is going. All of a sudden, it, it goes into a full circle. Or, of course, you can think of the clover leaves. That's easy to identify with. All of a sudden, you're on going the opposite way, even down at the lake. I don't understand what's going on when they made that change. You know, you're heading one direction. All of a sudden, it says Jeff City, and now you're going the opposite way. And you feel, I why didn't they just connect this road over there? I see simply how it can be, and I have to go all the way around. But it got me to where I was going. And so Gerstner said, I was going to New York City, had this circle where a complete circle where I turned around and went back the other way. I was heading east to Chicago, even though my trip was going to New York. Now, it might have been the other way around, but you get yeah. the gist of the story, right? But yet, that really got him to where he was going. And uh, so, just a... 
Yeah, yeah, right. The, sometimes God gives us the scenic route, right? After maybe we have chosen to um, do something that was not honoring to Him. But with Him sanctifying us and Him active in this, and we are active too, that's the thing. Um, when you think of monergism, that means it's God alone who saves. But sanctification is where God is active and we are now active. Almost everything is passive, but in sanctification, of course, we can't be active unless God is doing it. God works in us as we work out our salvation. Philippians what? Is that 2.13, I think? Is that right? I think so. Um, we can fall into dreadful lapses. You're pointing out, you know, it, it happens. We Christians, that definitely happens. It, it explains what's going on, though. Um, I think perfectionists would have, have a problem uh, therein. Uh, they don't really have an answer. What happens if somebody who is into perfection that doesn't sin anymore all of a sudden falls into a sin again? Well, I think they just deny it. I don't think they really know. They, I don't think they know how to define sin right. <laughs> and the pride that's there that's involved. Yeah, because humility is their enemy. <laughs> exactly. I was, I was thinking about this in, in Pilgrim's Progress. We were talking about progression and progress, being progressive, sanctification. That's what that book's about. <laughs> it's about getting somewhere. It's that direction. And any time they take any other path that maybe veers off the original one, it's because of their wrong choices. But he has to fess up to it after you know, either uh, evangelist comes and says, What'd you do? And he's like, "Oh, I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> forgive me and everything." And, uh, but that's that's the key. There is you want to be able to uh, if you don't realize that there is a problem with yourself, you're, you'll never get anywhere. You got to start with with that. Know God, and know yourself. Yeah. Two major tenets there. Calvin always spoke of those two things. And to first to first know God is where it starts. It's not about knowing self first, because a lot of oh, our yeah. psychology today will say this: yeah. know yourself. You know, and, and but you can't know yourself I, without I, knowing who. God, but no, you're exactly right. I'm not correcting yeah, you that even. On the, on the right, right. That's the journey. That's the progress, and that's the beauty of the who's story the of Pilgrim's Progress. Who makes, who's the rule on what you judge yourself by? You can't judge yourself until you know. Until you know what the rule yeah. is to the judge. Right. Yeah, in that movie, Greater, they even have, um, I think he had been raised up on reading Pilgrim's Progress. They showed the Are book, Pilgrim's yeah. Progress. Awesome. That was one of the first scenes, I think, and pretty well near in there. And I go, wow, <laughs> this is something. But, uh, anyway. Maybe it'll come back. There you go. It, uh, you'd, you'd like to see that. So, we, we um, did we read number three? We did, did we? Yeah. Did we finish? Yeah. Yep. So, the ones who are justified are sanctified. We, we grow constantly in grace. God is doing this, and yet we are also doing it too. I, I, 
I didn't read anything out of Romans, but we ought to do one verse at Romans 7, verse uh, uh, 23. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. There's who we battle against within my members. In uh, part, it's, it's the flesh. It's waging war. And, uh, the old Adam. The old Adam. Yeah. We, uh, we are in the new Adam, but uh, there is going back to what represents that uh, fleshly life. He said, you're in a lifelong struggle, Christian, but take heart because God loves a brave fighter. There you, like that. Yeah. Well, that, that's encouraging right it's there. Encouraging. It's truth. And, and you ever notice that when you get a hard truth at the same time and in Scripture the same way, verse or two later or maybe in the same verse it'll come back and give us the hope you know with it all and so we we always want to keep a balance so sometimes we're, we're hitting hard and heavy on a particular subject we still have to come back and then give the grace don't we that's gospel you know, law and what law and gospel <laughs> always though it's it, it's it, it's there um last one here is um it's another, it, it's a, it's, like Gerstner said, it's a, it's a basic ingredient of sanctification, saving faith, repentance. Uh, they all just are connected with each other. It's hard to divide them up, but yet it's, they're different angles of looking at what has happened to us. This particular chapter could have come right after the effectual call. And it kind of has been already in some areas. Uh, all of this, I think, is though it's a single whole, and of course we have chapters dividing it up, but election, you know, started uh, in chapter 3, and uh, then section 1, you will see it mentioned here. Um, The grace of faith by which the elect, there we go again, are enabled to believe. Only the elect are enabled to believe. Makes sense, right? So that their souls are saved is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. So there's the Spirit. And is ordinarily brought into being by the ministry of the Word. The Spirit and the Word. It is also increased and strengthened by the work of the Spirit through the ministry of the Word and also by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means or means of grace appointed by God. That can be in private worship, public worship. Public worship means of grace, as reformers have used so often. But looking back there, the work of the Spirit of Christ in our hearts, we know that 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 definitely is working in one who uh, has faith. Um, And you'll notice also, also by the ministry of the Word, it's the Word and the Spirit. You cannot separate them in... Um, salvation in faith the two go hand in hand constantly um, here it's it's a work that is done by the spirit um, faith is always the instrument that we have it brings us into union with Christ 
Um, it's always a gracious work. It's always still God's work. When we get into sanctification, it is God's work. When we get into dealing with faith, it's God's work. We do believe and we do repent, but it's still God's work. God's still doing His work in us as these come about, but yet it's something that we put into practice ourselves. And it's brought about by the ministry of the Word. And you'll notice he uses they use the word ordinarily brought into being. You guys see that in that first paragraph? Ordinarily. That's saying that almost all of the time it's by the Word of God that God will bring saving faith. What does that leave open? They don't shut the door entirely there, and neither do we, but yet it's almost always what God uses. But sometimes, on occasion, He can, and we have to be really careful about it, but He can, like we, and we've already seen a chapter dealing with that, or a point, a section dealing with the uh, infant. We're talked about infants. And the Word of God to them is not going to be effective, is it? They're not going to be able to understand that. So He works the, the Spirit in their hearts. He always works the Spirit in their hearts, but He uses it with the Word of God. Or somebody who can't understand, or, and we have to be careful, but He could, and it's not the norm at all, but He could work salvation in the heart of someone. And that's what they're doing there. And they're not shutting the door. They're not closing the door and saying he can only use the word and and that's it. But that's the means that he does and that we're familiar with. If you look in Romans 10, 14, uh, of course, uh, very familiar when everybody's familiar with this, but how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And of course, he's already talked about uh, it's, it's the very Word of God, right? Uh, in verse 17, uh, he brings that to fruition. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. That is the norm. And so that's the norm. That's why we can say, and they say, ordinarily. That's the process that God uses. That's the means. But he can, if he so chooses, to do the work by the Spirit alone. And so that's why they would have left that in there. But some people would like to uh, say God doesn't have to use His Word and uh, um, he, he just comes into my heart. Well, all of a sudden, we, we don't have truth. Usually He will use that truth. The Spirit of God is going to bring truth, but um, somebody can use some kind of experiences and experiences alone without being... Um, having a boundary of the Word of God. The Word of God is how, how He speaks. That would be the ordinary way. So that's why they, they use that. Um, I think you talked about increasing faith there, strengthened by the work of the Spirit. So not only it's salvation, but He... Uh, yeah, it's increased, strengthened by the work of the Spirit. 
spirit, the word, uh, going together, increasing faith. Um, we have faith that saves, but there is a sense of a, a degree. And he gets into that in point three as they do there. Uh, preaching, so, of course, is probably one of the the key terms of grace. Is that what you're saying? I've been reading a book about uh, Muslims coming to know the Lord, and one of the big means by which they come to know the Lord is dreams. Dreams, yeah. That God sends dreams to them that they have to find an interpretation for, and that's what leads them to the Lord. I believe if this was written by a non-English speaking people, there would be a lot more, where it says other means or something, there would be a lot more definition of that than what you get here. Yeah, I've heard over and over the testimonies. It's mm-hmm. always the dreams were it's the first things that kind of It's the testimony open. of people to them, yeah. but what finally, ultimately convinces them is they receive dreams from God. Right, and, and of course, that's... that's I guess that's what they're saying there. God can use that. That is not the norm, but it is a way that that He can be using on certain people at certain times. And so that's why we don't shut the door. That's why I say this this was written by English-speaking people. If it was written by people with a Muslim background, they might enlarge on that a lot instead of, saying that it's always by the word they say and, and this and this and this and two or three other things that brought them to faith in Christ. I, and I think what would happen with with a lot of people though if, if, if we don't like in the Romans 10 you would hear a lot of people's testimonies and all of a sudden if their testimony doesn't agree with the word then of course now we know that there's because it's still if the spirit of God comes into one in that way, and God chooses to, to do that way, then whatever whatever they believe about God is going to be something that would be eventually something that's going to tie in together with it. Well, it will never contradict the Word yeah, of God. They always, yeah. come, they always right. come to it, but I know what Elvin's sitting there saying there's been, I can think, about four different people, and it was really what awakened them was a horde of a dream there was an impression or something put upon them that awoken to what they were understanding was not truth because their society is based on a lot on what their interpretation of dreams and when this happens to I'm thinking of one particular person that I read about when this happened to him he got the interpretation of that dream and it, that's what led him to, to know that there's something different than what he did. That it was different than what he had been taught all his life. Right. Yeah. And don't you don't you think that that's going to drive them eventually, yeah. or f- probably very soon, to the Word of God, yeah. which is where they'll get more revelation of who, who God is. Well, the and, ones I knew, they wanted to get out of that circumstances. All of a sudden, it's like they were awakened to what they were living, and there was something different and more out there. Yeah, it made them go after it or leave comforts of what they mean in society. Yeah. Well, we know like like in Old Testament times for the what um, Hebrews 1 there was divers ways many different manners that God had revealed at that time 
And of course, that's why we can say in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. And of course, that's, that's pointing out who Christ is. And of course, that's, that's where everything is at. It's going to point to um, the uh, biblical Jesus, uh, the, the Jesus of Nazareth, the, the true you know, Savior. Um, that next one. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatever is revealed in the word because this word has the authority of God himself. Also, by this saving faith, a Christian apprehends an excellency in the word which is higher than in all other writings, everything else in the world, because the word shows forth the glory of God, revealing his attributes, showing the excellency of Christ's nature and offices, and also the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in his workings and operations. So the Christian is enabled to cast his soul upon the truth he has believed and to see and respond to the different kinds of teaching which different passages of Scripture contain. Saving faith equips him to perceive and obey the commands, hear the threatenings with fear and respect, and to embrace the promises of God for this life and the life to come. But the first and most important act of saving faith are those directly to do with Christ, when the soul accepts, receives, and rests upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Long paragraph there. Where did you get all that from? <laughs> Were you going along with the Westminster there? Yeah, it's really yeah. short. Yeah, I'm not so sure. I think some of the, those he ties in there. Yeah, right. And basically where I was going to be run at there is that there is an assent, believing this to be true, and then the trust, where one places their faith in him, um, entering into that relationship. Those, there's an assent to what has been presented by the truth of the Word of God, and as that is assent, so that would be the, the, the two parts of, of faith, assenting to it and then casting yourself on on that truth, putting everything into that. Uh, he uses the word receiving, resting on Christ alone. Uh, and, and then the third one is dealing with uh, different degrees of faith. Uh, this faith, although it differs in degree, it may be weak or strong. Now there is one faith, there's one saving faith, right? We all have that faith that believes... But yet in our walks, as we talked about sanctification, there's different degrees of faith between one person and another, and there's different degrees of faith from day to day in us, uh, or, or at different times. Um, it may be through faith sometimes without assurance. God gives us that, but yet sometimes one can, uh, a Christian can uh, even be doubting, uh, it can be, or one can have assurance, and still yet there's there's not perfection there. Uh, our faith brings re- receiving uh, all of that, r- recognizing that we're receiving His righteousness, and so when we receive His righteousness, we all have that same kind of faith there. But in our walks and in our t- years that we've been with the Lord sometimes there's varying degrees of faith there can be different seasons that we have in our lives it can be different from others Uh, so that's really what uh, that would be pointing out there Um, 
they're going to be temporary believers, and we talked about that. Really, uh, temporary believer, and look at this right here. There's an historical faith whereby people assent to the truth of a thing. Even the devils have that. James, right? Uh, even the demons believe and they shudder, right? So they, they recognize something that is true, their historical faith in that sense. So there's one kind of faith. A second one is faith in miracles where there was an act of faith to work miracles and passive faith to receive miracles. John 2, Jesus did miracles in Jerusalem. I think it was Passover time at that time, very early in the ministry. And people believed him because they saw it, right? But it still wasn't a saving faith. There's a temporary faith. Okay. Faith in miracles where there was an act of faith to work miracles. Where, <laughs> okay, Jesus had the act of faith. Let's just use the John 2 thing where Jesus is doing the miracle. Of course, they're believing then as they see the miracle. Remember, they saw that. They believed in him because they believed that miracle that was done. But still not a saving faith. I mean, that's the point on these, these different kinds of faith. Matter of fact, I don't even know if this is in the West, Westminster. Uh, this were some notes that were added. Um, I guess you can think also, uh, for example, uh, Genesis, when, the, when Joseph says to Pharaoh, there's going to be seven years of famine, seven years of, of plenty in the land, and he believes him, puts him in the throne, and gives him everything. That doesn't mean he, it was a saving faith. There was a faith there, but right, right, and that's what the temporary one. Then the third faith is the guy that really looks like he really believes. He's doing really good, right? Um, and of course, seed sown on the stony ground. That's stony ground. Soon springs up, then withers. This faith reaches the affections but does not endure. It really looked real here, right? This guy was even looked like he was progressing. But then there's saving faith. It's the faith that surpasses the other three, brings you to the physician so that you rest on Christ. Resting, trusting on Him entirely. So that there's, and of course that makes you think of the four soils, exactly. So different faiths, those are not degrees of saving faith there. They're just, uh, I think, explain, well, what is it that when people, they, they believe, you know, they, they'll even say they believe in Christ, but if they haven't really received Him hey, and I rested guess, on Him. But I guess yeah. those passages, when they, talk, when they differentiate between weak and strong faith, those two kinds are saving faith. Which ones? Weak and strong faith. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, that was back earlier in there, What right? Yeah. Is that what we're saying there? Because he kind of yeah. went from mentioning weak and strong faith to the question where it says the four different kinds of faith. Uh, I, I didn't know why he did that because... Yeah, because point three there really is these are believers. Right, saving faith. And, and so if somebody would have a question, of course, I think we probably covered that last week, but the four... The four faiths. There's only one of them that's real, just like in the four soils. So I guess yeah. there's the, there's those. Maybe I would order it, uh, put it backwards. So those four faiths to explain those first, and then the two faiths that are presented in number three 
uh, subdivision right of the of the saving of the, faith. The true saving faith. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that could be that could be uh confusing. Yeah. I and I know somebody, you know, could could ask, well, what is this faith? Uh, people believe it, they see it, you know, they say they're Christians, but well, then the four soils explain where that can be, especially that third one. Okay, we better close. We have gone over time again. Thank you guys. Covered quite a bit of elements there in a quick short time, but Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for these these truths, and uh, we recognize just by looking at your word, and then also uh, living through it and having the experience, we can see how we um, have been blessed by your working in us. As we talk about sanctification, you're setting us apart, but yet it is on to us to be obedient. We have that choice to obey you and. Thank you for putting it in our heart to desire to follow after you. And then if we have not honored you and have disobeyed and have sinned, uh, thank you, Lord, for convicting us by the Spirit and that we do not enjoy sin, but that we we would hate it. And the more that you show things that are not of you uh, or things that could be better for us, that we would uh, desire to more to... um, show the person of Christ in our lives who is that very image that we are looking for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, we thank you once again for joining us. We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you. Until next time.